Hello, hello, hello. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. To what? Welcome well, to we what? Should, we, should, we should do the intro the, the right way, right? It's like, um, it goes... We should. It goes, and now, it's time for Monkeys in Robot Suits. And Robots in Monkey Suits. With Noah Smith. And Jeff Byron. B- but the other guy is Noah Smith. I- I'm Jeff Byron. Yeah, not, yep, Noah Smith here. Now we're just going to play some guitar. Well, Jeff's going to play. How many podcasts have uh, people playing acoustic guitar at the beginning of them? Not enough. Just doodling. That's just eventually, doodling. I have this vision where eventually all the podcasts get people playing guitar at the beginning of them, and then people realize that they've kind of forgotten that guitar is actually really good, and then guitar comes back into our uh, national culture, because I feel like guitar is the thing that nobody does anymore and that I miss. Guitar is kind of falling out of favor, because it's, um, it's not an easy instrument to program in a computer. You actually kind of have to play it like an instrument. Right. Which is like all the kids these days don't want to actually go through the trouble of learning to play an instrument. They just want to they just want to press buttons on a keyboard and make it happen. Click stuff with a mouse. Right. right. I mean it's just easier, you know. It's like uh it's it's maybe a little lower quality to give up, you know, such great instruments like guitar. Uh, maybe significantly lower quality, but you get so much cheaper, you know, and that's a, that's an economics concept, this concept that people will take a bit lower quality for a big reduction in price. Yeah, I guess so. So that just means, means a, a, a lower common denominator among music creators, or yeah. you get, you get certain musicians that stand out because they actually go through the trouble to learn to play. Let's talk about music. That's something we talk about a lot in this show, but yeah. This That's show, a good point. Th- let's, this instead th- of talking about like good music, let's just like shit on young people's music. <laughs> like, I, like angry old people. Oh, man. Uh, all right. <laughs> so, <laughs> mon- Monkeys and Robot Suits. Robots and Monkey Suits with Noah Smith and Jeff Byron. This is a show where Noah and I get together and we talk about whatever the fuck we want to talk about. And it often has to do with music or food or traveling or whatever and we try to avoid any talk of the impending doom or the end of the world and we even have a safe word for that so which is yogurt by the way yes for right now it's yogurt the problem is at some point we're probably going to have a discussion about yogurt so we'll need to change it to like you know honeydew or something like that which we would never talk about because it sucks (laughs) what what honeydew honeydew is terrible I don't know. I think we could have quite a disagreement about this. Bojack Horseman, man. But um, but that would require us to find yet another safe word. So <laughs> I guess we're going to talk about shitty young people's music. Oh, man. Let me let me. Uh, Let's yeah. insult the kids. Let's insult the young people, the Zoomers. This, and this is going to be good. Yeah, Zoomers, prepare. We've already probably insulted them by t- by talking about the fact that they don't actually play musical instruments anymore. I know, and then there's like there's like a hundred like you know super guitar virtuoso 
Twitch streamer, YouTube, TikTok, Zoomers who are just like, who are just like, you know, oh my God, I'm, you know, I can play every single classic rock song with like, you know, tape on my fingers. I don't know. <laughs> well, like, how about this? Like now it seems like karaoke is basically an accepted art form in the musical world. And I don't really have a problem with that. I just think it's kind of interesting that now you can be a quote unquote artist and just, or, or not even karaoke, it's lip syncing. It's like the, the uh, musically TikTok thing where you don't really need to have a voice. You barely even know, need to know the lyrics to a song. And all of a sudden you're a music star. I kind of like that, to be honest. I mean, I'm, <laughs> well, I, I kind of like it too. I, I'm really just, see, I love everything about music. I just pretend to hate things for the sake of the show. But um, I know. I, <laughs> <laughs> but I can, we can still hate on it. I love, I, I miss, you know, I miss just gratuitously hating on things that don't matter at all. Like, remember when, when like people thought that, that like shitty pop bands like Hootie and the Blowfish were actually like the big negative force in society? Well, you mean like like big crappy major label bands or that exactly. particular type of blues blues rock thing or possibly whatever both. They were. <laughs> Remember yeah. when people like thought that was a socially significant thing? It well it was because it represented <laughs> it represented the machine taking over your your world, man. <laughs> it, 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 like the well when I was so when I was a teenager, one of the one of the worst sins you could commit was to sell out. Like the idea of selling out was like, oh, never in a million years. And now I make music for like McDonald's ads and stuff like that. So I've completely sold out. But um, but it's like for now selling out is like a, I mean, people try to do it. You know, all these people in Silicon Valley making apps just right. so they can sell out. It's like a thing that you get respect for if you do. But no, man, when we were kids, being capitalism won everywhere cool. except Twitter. Yeah, yeah. So, oh yeah, and then and then when it comes to things like that are derivative of music, like karaoke, it took me a really long time to get into karaoke. I was really offended by it at first because I was an actual musician and I actually sang in a band. So, going to a karaoke bar where everyone is singing all drunk and poorly was like, a, Ugh, I'm too I'm too cool for this or something. <laughs> well, that's the thing they switched from from bars to like the booth karaoke where you just go with your friends. Mm -hmm. That was the key transition that made karaoke better. So you don't have to hear like the same, like, like drunk group of, mm -hmm. of, you know, like Midwestern 35 year olds sing that same journey song for the thousandth uh, time. And now I love it. Now I love it because I understand that it's just part of being a human and enjoying life is like getting together with your friends and singing as loud as you can, even though you Hell sound yeah. terrible. I mean, that's like yeah. been centuries and centuries of people doing that. And, uh, and so now we just have a new version of it that's came around 20 years ago or 30 years ago or whatever. Um, but yeah, so karaoke, it has a place in the world and it has a place in my heart. Um, I think I actually don't like karaoke because I'm not act, I'm not that great of a singer, but people expect me to be good because, you know, I played in a band and stuff like that. So uh, it's more like a disappointment in myself that I can't do karaoke better, which is well, ridiculous. I will I will be your karaoke mentor. We can go to karaoke, and then like you know, <laughs> I can mentor. show you the right level of of cheesiness, 
Because you can't be too good at it because if your friends are not that good at it, they'll be like, okay, well, now we feel embarrassed about our own scene. You have to be like somewhat bad. Well, it's, it's, it's really not about singing well. It's about having as much fun as you can, right? Yes. We're, we're gonna need, if you're going to be my mentor, then we're going to need like a we're going to need like a Rocky like montage where you're like getting me geared up for the, for the karaoke <laughs> event. <laughs> Noah's making me do push-ups, like m- microphone pumps in the air. <laughs> Here I go again on my own. <laughs> I've, I've, I have a, a, a skill there. It turns out there is one skill that where I can actually teach you something. And that's being a complete dork in public. <laughs> it turns out i'm actually good at that you know what though being a dork in public is and i mean that is one of the most like one of the best things that you can get good at i think like not just i mean not just being a dork but being a fool i think being able to be a fool in public and like not care Yes. I mean, I, I, I can't do that. And I want to, I want to learn that, that, that DGAF-ness of life. But yeah, that's hard. Exactly. Um, it's, it's the power of, you know what I mean? Yeah. But then there's also like, uh, uh, it's the, um, it's the, it's the exhibition of, of that. It's the exhibition of, of however you do that i can't even do it yeah no you got to learn it see yeah you just makes me feel stupid though no i can't do that in public (laughs) (laughs) this is where you start this is where you start exactly everybody listening right now go (laughs) walk outside ever made walk outside and go And then when you look at your neighbor who is looking at you like you're crazy, you smile at him and put your thumbs up and go. <laughs> we just, this is the best podcast ever made. <laughs> We're teaching people. We're both teachers. By the way, Noah and I are both teachers, or at least we have been teachers. In we have class. been. So we're, we're good at this. Yes, that's right. That's, <laughs> just in case you're wondering if we're good, we're good. We are experienced. Yes. So mm. all the, all those fart noises we just made—that's part. That's pedagogy. Yes. yes, that is. It's experience. It's pedagogy. It's um, it's fine fine tuned technique that I just learned because I didn't know how to do it five minutes ago. Uh, <laughs> all right. All um, right. What well, else are okay. the kids doing? What else yes, that's right. We have to insult the kids. So. So I have to say, the kids love K-pop, and I am starting to really like K-pop. I didn't know anything about it before, mm-hmm. and recently I've started to get into it a little, and I like it a lot. So I don't, I don't, I am embarrassed to say that I don't know much about K-pop. Do you, do you know enough about K- K-pop to give us a little crash, crash course or history lesson in it? I know enough to make you feel like you're learning something and, and our non-existent listeners feel really mad. Yeah. You're an experienced teacher. So uh... (laughs) there you go. (laughs) Right. Well, okay. So K-pop, basically you've got girl groups and guy groups. You don't really have mixed groups, uh, or at least not that I've ever seen. And the guy groups sound 
fairly hip hoppy. You know, it's kind of like uh, slightly Justin Timberlakey kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> what they mostly have is incredible dancing. These guys are just, you know, like like Justin Timberlake could like, you know, scrub their boots or something. These guys are unbelievable just in the athleticism and the coordination and the showmanship. It's like nothing I've ever seen. And they're just so good. Um, you know, like girls think they're sexy and like, they're, so do you, just, they're great. Do you know? So when, when I was a teenager, I had some friends that were into the subgenre of J-pop, which is pop from Japan. Right. Right. And it's a J-pop was this kind of overproduced pop music that was, there was like, basically it was totally over the top. And do you know how K-pop is different from that? Because it seems like another kind of overblown, overproduced thing that is even, maybe it's more inspired by American music or something. I have no idea. Well, I don't know what overproduced means, actually, because, you know, I've never seen music produced at all. It's Mm -hmm. it's really production intensive. Uh, But I wouldn't say over because that's just the way it is. That's what it's supposed to be. Um, In terms of over the top, I would not say it's over the top. I, I know what you mean about J-pop, and that's just typical of Japanese culture, the like just extreme excessive expressiveness of Japanese culture, where like <laughs> everything in Japanese culture is like, wow, oh my God, yeah. and like silly faces. Right. That's like that's Japanese culture, and I love it. You know, I'm I'm I lived in Japan. I'm probably gonna move back to Japan. And um and it's just great. But but that's not what K-pop is. K okay. K-pop is much cooler. It's much more controlled. It's much more, um, yeah, it's just much like there, there's much more like um, restraint in terms of being cool. And, um, and it's, it's in terms of the kind of music, it's much more hip hop influenced. J-pop was really very much rock influenced. And I think um, uh, K-pop is really hip hop influenced, especially the guys music. So I mean, of mm-hmm. course, there's this whole story, and I, I know this this guy on on Twitter uh, at Aska Korean. So if you look at Aska <laughs> Korean, he'll tell you the whole history of K-pop and how, like, um, you know, GIs serving in Korea brought American culture, including hip hop, to Korea, and then Koreans like turned it into this pop thing. But it's not just hip hop; it has other influences too. Um, but that's the the guys' music is more is more hip hoppy. Um, the, the girls music does have some hip hop, but also has some, you know, like, you know, eighties Madonna, Cindy Lauper kind of, kind of influence and also some J-pop influence. And it's pretty eclectic. Mm -hmm. So I actually like the girls music better because it's more stylistically varied and complex. I I wonder, yeah, I wonder if there's any, if there, I wonder what of the production or whatever, what of the art is like organic i wonder if there's anything that's organic here if, if, if everything is kind of pieced together methodically because that's oh, what it seems to me when totally, i see totally artificial. I, yeah like when i see like whenever i see a performance like you don't see any musical instruments or anything you see like six guys on stage doing synchronized dances and so in my mind i just think there's a huge fucking record label and like hundreds or thousands of people working on this production. There's the entire crew that goes on tour. There's like basically the handlers for each one of these kids. And the kids are mainly just dancers 
but can also kind of sing too. And like, and I'm, I'm, I'm wonder, I wonder who the most, like uh, how that hierarchy works. Like who are the most important people in the K-pop hierarchy? Like, uh, I don't even know that. So what's interesting about K-pop in addition to the, the music, there's this whole, there's this whole suite of, of ways to experience it that all go together. And one of those is the dancing, you know, like K-pop is legendary for dancing, which is not true of J-pop. I mean, J-pop sometimes has dancing, but it looks like dances right? It, 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 that you do at a party. It, it's not, <laughs> yeah. you know, and there's, there's Japanese dancers who are really good and they tend to go work in Korea and be in K-pop bands. I see. Um, I see. So like there's this, band, yeah. there's this band twice that has several Japanese members and I, I think like their, their top dancers are, are from Japan, you know, because Korea is the place you go to dance if you're really into it. And, um, hmm. but yeah, so then they, uh, I mean, the industry itself is horrible and exploitative. It's just the same industry manufacturing so. machine that you'd imagine. Yeah. Right? I can't, bad. I can't help, but like, think about that because I've, I've in America being a part of the music industry has been a traumatizing experience for me, but also something like that I know pretty well at this point and I've played different roles in it. So, right. um, and like, I, I, I just, I, you know, even in, in the eighties, like, which was arguably the height of pop music in America, where you have like Madonna and Cyndi Lauper that you mentioned or Michael Jackson or whatever, you get these big machines that are producing music. Like the number of people who made a Michael Jackson record is thousands of people or whatever, but you still pretty much have Michael Jackson in charge of it. And even though Madonna had a manager and a record label and stuff like that, right. she was she was still kind of in charge. From what I understand, she was in charge of it, which is, uh, I wonder what that's like when you've got like basically teenagers. BTS, they're like literally teenagers, right? I remember hearing something like one of them was going to need to serve in the military, so he was going to have to leave BTS for a bit. Um, no, BTS, uh, they're in their 20s. Oh, okay. I, I don't thought... know. They might have started. I mean, they all start when they're teenagers with like the, you know, Mm-hmm. They they start their stuff when they're teenagers, but I think they debut when they're like, when they're when they're you know, in their twenties, yeah, maybe like nineteen, twenty. Must have been a different group. I heard that somebody needed to go serve in the military, and they were going to be gone for like two yeah. years, and then they were the going to come back. The oldest is like twenty eight, I think, and the youngest yeah. is and like you're done. The youngest is like twenty three. They're like twenty three through twenty eight of BTS. I mean, do you know the band Menudo? Have you heard of Menudo? Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, 80s, Menudo, right? the 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 Mexican boy band from the eighties and nineties. I think it was eighties and nineties. Yeah. Basically, they were known for having to turn over their members as soon as they hit like sixteen. They always oh, had to have them be really young as soon as you oh, were man. too old. I didn't know you're that. gone. Oh man, yeah. Okay, well these. I mean, like these guys are Korean, so they're going to mm-hmm. look young into their like well into their like thirties, <laughs> so they can keep doing it. They can keep doing it, and and. No, I mean, the, the reason they would turn over is just because the industry needs new blood to continue to gin up new enthusiasm and stuff. But, but so K-pop, it's really more about this interactive fan experience. And the, the fact that we have the internet means that there's so many more ways. You know, back in the day, you would definitely have music fandoms. You'd have people who all see each other at all the shows, right? Like, so, so I was in the mm-hmm. Flaming Lips fandom, and I'd go to all the Flaming Lips shows, and I'd see the Flaming Lips people, and maybe talk to them on some message boards or something. But it was like this, it was a little community. Well, K-pop has really taken that just to 
to a, a level beyond anything we could have imagined because K-pop, you have these, these fandoms that are just intense. It's like, it's like your global family. It's, it's, you know, it's like an identity group almost. You have the BTS army. Um, they, they come up with names for them. So like uh, the fans of Blackpink, the girl group are called Blinks. And uh, in fact, sometimes the, I, I think generally the company uh, itself, the production company decides what the fandom will be called. And then, uh, you know, they, maybe they have input from the, from the musicians too, but they decide what the fandom will be called. And then, so someone has decided that you're a, a, a blink or, um, if you like red velvet, the, the girl group, red velvet, you're a revelove. And these don't always, you know, sound so euphonious in English, but you know what? Go with it. So, <laughs> I mean, the BTS army is, is it, it's a real army. Like these people, they're politically active. They hijack every white supremacist hashtag. So if you're on Twitter, like the, the white supremacists try to make hashtags about stuff and like gin up angry Nazi energy like they used to in 2015 and 2016. <laughs> and now weird. the K-pop fans just completely kick the shit out of them. That turned out to be the antidote to Nazis was just K-pop. That's, <laughs> that's the way it should be. Like, that's the way it should be. I mean, I don't know. We might need to have an entirely different podcast episode about art for art's sake but i feel like in a in a world where you have fascism then like what is the what is the opposite of fascism k-pop k-pop it's k-pop right. apparently you know it's like it's like an it's it's in an, an art and a culture it's really it's it's culture it's 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 art and it's culture and it's joy that comes together and defeats the forces of evil um right and um and so I think it's, you know, back in like the 60s when you had protest rock and all that stuff, I feel like there was some of that. And now BTS has brought that back a little bit. But the thing is that, you know, where you get 60s rockers would sing about how war sucks and blah, blah, blah. Um, you don't really, like BTS doesn't sing about political stuff. They're just singing about like love and relationships and whatnot. But then the, um, the, uh, the fandom is intensely political and anti-fascist. Yeah. All over the world. I have, um, this reminds me of a story from when I was in a band releasing records. We, we as a band kind of did something that looking back, wasn't so cool. We, we just kind of tried to stay away from, from, from politics. Right. Oh, of course. Like I, I regret it. Um, but, uh, so we were on this record label called kill rock stars. And when, when, uh, when Bush won, uh, when George George Bush Jr. W. won the second time, uh, the 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 president of Kill Rock Stars, Slim Moon, he emailed everybody on the record label, every single artist, every single person who worked in the office, and he was pissed. He was like, "You guys aren't supposed to let this happen." And I thought it was interesting because the first for the first time ever. I'm hearing somebody say, no, you should inject politics into your, into your music, into your art. Cause I always lived by the art for art's sake, you know, like let's keep the art pure, which is such a privileged thing to be able to do. But Slim Moon was disappointed in us. And he said, no, you guys are responsible for the culture. And this culture is supposed to be what protects us from, from, from war and stuff like this. And ever since then, I've taken it really seriously whenever Whenever I have an audience, it's kind of my responsibility to, to 
make sure they, 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 that we, you know, that these things are at least things we talk about. Even if, even if people disagree with us, it's like, I don't know. It's just a right. thing. That, I, yeah. And I don't know why that was even ever a debate because I mean, art for art's sake, like art has to speak to something in the human experience and politics and social phenomena are part of the human experience. I do, so, I mean, there's other things like you can have art that's about like love or about, um, you know, like existential dread or just about nothing except the fact that sounds sound good to humans. Uh, but like you can like absolutely, if you leave politics out of art, if you somehow make that a, an off limits area, I just don't understand how it can be fully human. It's not, then, yeah. yeah, it's not really possible. It's, it goes back to the, this Oscar Wilde poem, uh, don't really remember the poem, but he's talking about, he says all art is useless. Um, and, and it was either Oscar Wilde or George Bernard Shaw. I think it was Oscar Wilde, but he said, all art, all art is inherently useless, but that's, that's impossible. It's almost like a platonic idea of the art that you should create. You should strive for uselessness in your art. You should strive for, for your art to have no meaning outside of art itself. And that is like what you should that the idea of art for art's sake was that you strive for that rather than have your art be politically motivated from the beginning, because then it's less artistic, you know, according to this idea. But to me, it's so impossible to do. It's because there's no, you, you can't make art in a vacuum. It need, you need an influence, whether that is political or whether it's just inspiration, but it might as well have i mean it needs to have a lot of meaning in your in your life so i've come to the conclusion that it's impossible to separate things like politics and art and if you try to it's your privilege to be able mm -hmm. to do that really yeah i mean i just think that you know art should be for human sake and politics is is part of human stuff that doesn't mean all art should be political people who criticize non-political art for because oh you have an obligation to be political in everything you do i think that's equally restrictive i think art should just be about like anything and everything and there should be art for all kinds of things yeah <laughs> that may be the most boring art viewpoint that you've ever heard but like all kinds of art are actually good and i think we just need all of them yeah i agree i agree yeah. i mean this conversation gets a little yogurt covered because yeah it's yeah but like i've come to the i've come to the belief that if there is, it's, it's hard to blissfully create art when there's so much work that needs to be done, uh, whether it's, you know, <laughs> justice or awareness or anything like that. It's just, it's impossible. So, and it, and like you say, all the art is good. We need it all because that's what protects us from fascism. Really. I mean, it's, it's one of many things that protects us from fascism. Nope, that's it, Noah. We're going to defeat fascism <laughs> with, with art, with, with creativity, with imagination. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're uh, gonna... so, so I said we were going to insult the things the kids like, but it turns out that the kids like some good stuff too. Yeah. Um, and I, I realized that the stuff that I don't like tends to be more of the stuff that people who are now like 30 like like taylor swift or like you know quote unquote edm 
Yeah, like, I, I like both bad. those things, actually. Kind well, of. Well, you're wrong. I don't know. It's... <laughs> I'm wrong. <laughs> Sorry. I'm wrong? You mean I don't you're like wrong. them? No, um, that's right. You well, don't. Well, you think what, you do, but you don't. What I like, what stands out to me as uh, you know, an amateur music historian is that is that we see we see the trends happening before they're even really trends. So when it comes time for a younger generation to define the music of their of their youth or the music of their generation, we've kind of already seen it before. And I remember like. My dad used to kind of he I, I'd play him a new band and he would be like, ah, it kind of sounds like the police or it kind of sounds like Genesis. I'm like, no, dad, it doesn't say not every band that I like sounds like the police. But he had a point that like most of the stuff that I was listening to had electric guitars and vocals and drums. I mean, that's not that original. Um, and so for us, when we hear something that feels very definitive of youth of new generations, for us, it's like, it's kind of really related to hip hop, or it's just kind of crappy country music, or it's just another version of pop music. Taylor Swift is just, you know, just another pop star, really. Yeah, I mean, Taylor Swift's got like, one song that I like, I think. Which one? Do you know? Do you know the oh, name yeah, of it? The, um, the uh, uh, Shake It Off, I, I kind of like yeah. And I feel like that song, and then the other thing about this music, Noah, is most of these hit songs were all kind of written by the same people. So Max Martin, the, the writer and producer for most of those songs, he is the number one hit maker in the world. He is, uh, I think he's, he's Norwegian or Swedish. I think he's Swedish. But Max Martin started writing music, I think, for like, like the Backstreet Boys in the in the nineties, and and uh, and now he does all the Taylor Swift songs. So those songs that you love, that you like, I won't say love, like "Shake It Off." Those are songs that are like scientifically scientifically engineered to be catchy and to be likable. So it's uh, they they're totally they're totally engineered to be number one hits. Those songs. Um, so it I, makes sense. I believe it, but then like a lot of other Taylor Swift stuff, I'm just like, Meh. I mean, t that song doesn't really have much about it that I think is quintessentially Taylor Swift. It could be sung by pretty much anybody. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah. So w when, when, when younger people think they've discovered something new, we're the, we're the quote unquote boomers that get to say, no, nah, that's, that's not original. I feel like that happens with a, right. type, a new type of hip hop that comes around, comes along all the time, whether it's like, you know, ratchet or trap or all these words that come, come out. Um, and I'm just thinking, yeah, it's, it's still a, just a kind of hip hop. Trap has trap drums though. Trap drums are great. Trap drums. Well, that's yeah, the, the, thing. the it's, fast it's, snare. It's, it's, I love that. it's, it's, you know what that it's is? Cool. You know what that is? The fast snare is sort of the, the rap equivalent of, like the the um the the power chords in like you know grunge music or whatever back in like the 90s like it was just such an easy trick to just go broom, 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 but like it was just <laughs> it, it got you every time somehow and you're like i shouldn't fall for that again but it's just so good and like that that whole trap like kind of thing I just, yeah i love it well and they've also the the producers of trap have taken it a step further and they've used technology i mean for instance, the really fast snare, it's, 
really that's really difficult to do if you're playing a snare as a drummer you you need you need editing software to be able to create something like that or the really fast yeah those things the hi-hats um but also one of the things that i love are the tuned kick drums so they they took a kick drum like a bass drum and they blend it with a bass synthesizer or bass guitar and they make it sound like a kick drum that is changing in pitch, which is pretty cool, actually, which you could never do before with with real instruments. So that's something that hmm. actually is kind of kind of. How unique. does it sound like hum it? Uh, well, they're usually subsonic, but it's like it sounds like a kick. So a normal kick sounds like, you know, it's kind of a pop sound. But these go boom, 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 boom. So it's just bass notes, and the kind of things that you hear uh rattling people's cars when they drive by when they're blasting it but yeah it's just a it's a it's a it's a kick drum that has a harmonic value to it or a pitch value so that's a little modern music lesson right there that's cool all right so that's uh that's that's a couple things that the kids like like uh you know <laughs> k-pop is good and trap is good yeah but but trap is one that like these definitions this is what this is what my dad was talking about is like these definitions come up and they don't, they aren't really defined. It's not because the trap is not defined by those drum sounds that you describe. It's kind of, I mean, those are an element of it, but it's like, it's more about the movement. And that's the thing that is confusing to people as they get older is that you can't really define music by like, you wouldn't say that rock is defined by the power chords. No. That's that's not right. No, but the power chords are part of the rock music. So, right, uh, you got, we got to think of things as movements and not as definable things. Yeah. Right. All right. We talk about music a lot on this show. I guess it we makes do. Sense since I'm, there's one. I'm a there's one more person. kind of music that I that I really that that I don't know about if the kids like it, but certainly the the pseudo young people, the somewhat young people, liked it. <laughs> five years ago six years ago which is edm and i really don't like edm and every time i listen to it i'm just like this this is the degeneration of right. like electronic actual electronic dance music what is going on here what am i listening to yeah for me so edm is another one of these terms that for me is very ambiguous because it stands for electronic dance music right and it it really kind of sounds like the, you know, the progressive trance and the house stuff from the '90s and and early 2000s. It sounds so derivative of that, but it was. But not as good. But well, I mean, that some people think is good. I mean, you don't like it, but like it's very very popular. So people are either on a lot of drugs or they like it. Probably lots of drugs, but um, but like it's become the sound of big parties. And I think, I think it's like that music, again, it's almost like scientifically engineered to make you, make you want to do stupid shit at a party. That's kind of what it does. And, uh, I'm, you know, has, I'm just, I, I was born with a genetic anomaly that makes me immune to that engineering. I, I think that's possibly true. I, or I think that it's like you have, you're, you're the type of person who actually, I mean, how often do you just turn off your brain and then do something really dumb? I mean, maybe it happens every once in a while, but it's not something that you're going to go out to a party hoping to do. 
<laughs> and like, I think, it requires I think, drugs. <laughs> it requires drugs. And for a lot of people, their idea of leisure is to, I'm going to go to a party and be the dumbest person I can be and listen to the, the stupidest music. And I'm just going to lose my shit for a weekend. And that's what I'm going to do for fun. Like, that's not what you and I do for fun. We make podcasts and stuff. Did we ever do that? Well, I did. I dabbled in it. Um, and and in definitely, stupid shit? I feel well, like I, I, I missed that. I just I could never quite do stupid shit. Well, here's the thing. For me, and you know this about me, it's that doing the stupid shit is not enough for me. I need to figure out how to make the other people do the stupid shit. <laughs> so when we were in college, like we lived in this house together. And it wasn't just about going to parties but i was the social manager i actually threw the parties so it was it's all about learning to be the dj and learning to be the coordinator and like observing people as they lose their minds <laughs> but maybe uh yeah that's just the puzzle that i see life is you see different puzzles what kind of puzzles do you see noah smith what do you mean puzzles but what, what? With the puzzle. I see uh, a puzzle is, in my opinion, is anything that needs to be solved, and that's what that's one of the things that makes Jeff Byron Jeff Byron. Is I see the world as puzzles that need to be solved or hmm. played with. Hmm. And um, I mean, I know that you see the world in lots of yogurt covered puzzles, um, but are there any that are not so yogurty? I don't know. I puzzles. Yeah, I mean. Hmm. I mean, like, just how to have a good life is a puzzle, right? Like, that's the real game of yes. life is just how to have a good life. Yeah. That's the that's the actual. I mean, like, we we distract ourselves with these problems like math puzzles, you know? Like, we're doing yes. we're doing math. We're trying to figure out like, oh, like, like you know, can you color a? Why can you color any map with just four colors or something like that? And like, who cares? Ultimately, it's about living a good life, which is harder because you can't. The answers are not as defined, and the methods are not as defined, and it's just you're hunting around in a, you know, sort of a dark forest of of uncertainty. But that's uh, that's why it's the biggest challenge. Living a good life is the greatest intellectual challenge that you could ever uh, have. Yeah, I don't think anyone could really disagree with that. Um, maybe some people don't see it as a puzzle. Maybe some people see it as a a ride that they're on or whatever but i feel like yeah trying to figure out how to enjoy life is and then and then i mean I, yeah i guess that's the way i think of it too and then everything that kind of comes along is a smaller puzzle that needs to be solved i, I mean the project that you and i are working on is definitely a puzzle that's like that is a, a, we're trying to build something so every little aspect of it is a puzzle that needs to be put together yeah, this is a fun. This is a fun thing that we're doing. The thing that we're doing is fun. It is, it is very fun. It's just like, and it's not going to stop. Like every little thing is going to be just a complete puzzle. Yeah. Everything is like, but the interesting thing is you're out of your depth. It's like playing a video game that's actually a different video game that you've never played every week. Yeah, and you don't have time to learn it. You just have to try your best at that one, and then you're on to the next one, and it's different every week. Yeah, like l last night you and I were like Legos came up in conversation. We were talking about Legos with with somebody 
and how like you get when you're a kid, you get a box of Legos and then you see the cover of it and you're like, oh, that's the spaceship I'm going to build. And then as you start building it, you realize it's kind of hard to build that exact spaceship. And like you realize that you maybe you don't want to build that exact spaceship. You want to build some kind of new spaceship. And I feel like that's kind of what we're doing with our fun project. It's like we we had a rough idea of what it was by looking at the picture, but now we're putting together a much more awesome spaceship. That's, yes. Uh, we that's are, my Lego analogy. It will be like a 12-foot-long spaceship. And now, will it Will it ever... I don't think it will ever be completed. I don't, I don't think so. I think it's going to be one of those will. things that, that just keeps on growing. It will. The, you know, at some point... Um, yeah, who knows how long we'll be with it. We could we could be doing this for the rest of our lives. Yeah. It's yeah, maybe. We'll see. That's actually a, a you know, a good outcome. A bad outcome is that we just fail and suck and die within a year. So Yeah. So there is um there is a there's a there's a part of it that's really kind of frustrating. And we like this is kind of a good thing to talk about on this podcast, and that is because what we're doing is not just a fun project, but it's also technically a business. And that one of our one of our goals, one of the objects of the game is to is to make enough money so that we can continue doing it, right? That's part of what we have to do. I think one of the, the frustrating things in my life is that at least, especially in America, but all over the world, we've decided that the game that we're gonna play is to compete to see who can get more money than uh, everyone else. And like when it comes to puzzles, uh, that that is that is such a that's such a crappy puzzle compared to how that's to have a great life. How to have a great life is a great puzzle. How to make as much money as you can is a terrible puzzle. But it's one that we've kind of agreed that we can kind of play together. And that's a right. It's a simple metric, you know. But yeah. then I think people are starting to get tired of that game because what they realize is that so much of that game is luck. It's like it's like it it's like playing. Um, what's a game that just depends like. It's like ninety percent luck and then ten percent skill. Like people are starting to realize it's that. What, what's a what's a card game that's like a shit ton of luck? Well, I mean, like poker's like that. What the skill is to lie is to look like you. Have well, got sure, cards, but but good but poker. You can have a world series of poker. That's true. But like it's a blackjack, <laughs> you right. gotta count cards, or you're just gonna yeah. A, uh, a I I have a friend who made about like I don't know two hundred million dollars or something in finance. And he mm-hmm. said, he said, you can make a hundred million dollars by being good, but you can only make a billion dollars by being lucky. Well, a billion dollars is 10 or times. Evil. Or no, not even evil. <laughs> no, not oh, even okay. That. So in some, in some countries you can, sure. but like, so the way you make a billion dollars by being evil is by being close to someone in power who hands you a billion dollars. So mm-hmm. you're his like crony and enforcer, mm-hmm. but that's, that's rel- So that's relatively rare. That's like the oligarch route is not common, but like, there's plenty of people who are plenty evil who don't make a ton of money or who, who make like, you know, $10 million, but don't make like a billion dollars. Like you've got to be so lucky and not just lucky in terms of like rolling the dice and hoping you win, but lucky in terms of like doing something that nobody had any idea even had the possibility of making this much money. Mm -hmm. Like when, when Microsoft, when Bill Gates, uh, you know, dropped out of college to do Microsoft no one had even the slightest inkling that making a software company like that could make you a mega billionaire. Like they didn't, 
it wasn't that he rolled the dice and said like maybe I'll get lucky and then get got lucky. It's mm-hmm. that he it's that he rolled the dice on something that he had no idea that it, it's like he rolled a die and he didn't even know how many sides were on the die. Right? It's like yeah. it's complete uncertainty. It's just, he did this thing that nobody could even evaluate the chances of it, you know, ex ante, like in advance. And, and, um, that's what entrepreneurship really is, which means that people may, may imagine people may like to fantasize about the amount of money they'll make doing it. And of course they'll go for money. They'll try to extract money from it. But I think a lot, a lot of entrepreneurs, some entrepreneurs really do do it for the money, but I think a lot don't a lot do it so they can make something so they can have their personal stamp on something, mm-hmm. which is also, you know, maybe that's an arrogant, self-aggrandizing motivation as well mm. you know just to be like an important person but like um i think that it's more than that it's it's this feeling of we're very transitory and we want to leave our stamp on the universe somehow and it's just a question of how to do that well writing a great novel that everyone will remember forever is one way creating an organization mm. is another way creating a product is another way mm-hmm. that's just a way to, uh, to stamp yourself on the universe forever and say this thing was different because of me. I think that's what motivates yeah. a lot of entrepreneurs. Yeah. Well, and there's also, I mean, the, the, the capitalism is a simple metric that we've been able to agree on. But now that, no, I mean, with the internet, we get, we see other motivating factors because you see things that even billionaires can't get, like maybe they can't get social status or they, uh, they can't get the access they want, or they can't get the, I know one uh, thing that they'll never be able to get, no matter how good technology gets, which is to have, have, have had a happy childhood. Yeah. Whoa. I didn't even think about that. No, no Um, technology ever. It's physically (laughs) impossible. No technology ever will give even the richest person in the universe a happy childhood. I guess not. It's hmm. just impossible. No, you know what? I, I lied because they could implant false memories of a happy childhood. Somewhere. Uh, I was thinking something along those lines. Yeah, or, they'll be able to do that. Or, or they, could, they could do it. They could tr- try to ensure that their children are going to have happy childhoods. But that's a different thing. That's a very and, different thing. And, and, and oftentimes, I don't know. I, I, don't think, I don't think there's any way. There's no real prescribed way to give somebody a happy childhood. That's just not the way it works. Um, I don't know. I don't know about that. Well, I, I mean, I do know that, that, well, I do hope that the internet continues to, to, to give people options over what game they want to play. Cause well, I mean, we're still in the early days of the internet and that's kind of a mind blowing thought. Um, that, uh, right. that, that everything right now and the way we communicate is still, is still so new and how much it's influencing people's decisions. I mean, we talk about music on this show. The internet is making it so that I think music's going to be better in the future because more people have access to more music and more people have voting power uh, to, to share what they like rather than some music producer saying, this is what everyone's going to be listening to on the radio. Now we've democratized things. So the same thing should go for, uh, do, like building things and building things maybe people will build th- things not just for money or status but maybe they'll find well maybe we'll find new things that we didn't even realize um i think that family is becoming more valued i think the internet is making families more i i, I don't know maybe it's just something i see or but uh 
I feel like there's a lot more role models on the internet that have happy families. And, and like something about the way we grew up, like I feel like it was really common to like watch a sitcom on TV about a broken family, like full house or, um, you know, like family ties or whatever. like, well, family ties, I guess is a normal family, but how many, or, um, arrested development, all of these, all of this content about broken, weird, fucked up families. Why was that a part of our life? Um, oh, why was that a part of our life? Cause that's been well, a part I mean, of human life forever. Well, well, no, no, because what I'm seeing now is that I feel like a lot of the content that's being made now has better portrayal of happy family life. But, but, but for us, as we, when we were growing up, I felt like there were so many broken families. That was just such a common thing. And maybe you're right. Maybe the broken families have always been a thing. I mean, they maybe- have always been a thing. And also I got to say, this is a, this is a classist thing because what happened in the 1970s was that divorce rates really, really rose for educated people mm-hmm. and the, the sort of educated, you know, professional managerial class and, but stayed low for less educated people. Um, and so this, this gave rise to the idea that like, you know, elites were decadent and the, the, you know, working class people yeah. were the salt of the earth and all this shit. And then they completely reversed. So from the eighties, divorce rates uh, among educated people started really falling and now are pretty low very low. Yeah. That's, and, yeah. Div- but divorce rates and like having kids out of wedlock and all that stuff really started to skyrocket for the, the working class. And by now, um, you know, education simply will determine whether you get married or not. And college grads get married at insanely higher rates than non-college grads. Hmm. Uh, and this is, this is like, you know, across races, across geography, it's just, it's really just an educational thing. All, the working class people are starting to experience massively broken homes, uh, while while educated people have largely that's interesting given up that that kind of stuff. And 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 of course, educated people were more prepared to handle it. You know, a, a one income family or like single parents, it, it's a lot more tenable if you can make more money. You know, and have a job that gives you more independence, like professor or whatever. Like if you're mm-hmm. if you're if you're a working class person, being a single mom really sucks. And yet that's the situation that a lot of working class people are in now. So, so it's really classist to think that families have healed. Yeah. That's because they haven't. That's like the information that I needed to hear that it's like, it's like, you're right. From my perspective, it seems like families are portrayed better on the internet and all this stuff, but really, really, that's just the bubble that I live in and that families have always been pretty, messed up it's just socioeconomics that twist twist things around mm-hmm. um and uh yeah i'd be interested in looking at some of those some of those charts to see because uh, i know i know a lot of people over the last 10 years since since the housing crisis in, in 2008 i knew a lot of people my age who like they they don't want to have children because they can't afford it they think right. that that's that's something they can't there or they'll do, they'll have kids when they finally can afford it. When like my, my parents, I mean, they were, they were young and they didn't have any money and they were, they wanted a family. It was just kind of a given. So, yeah. Well, something to think about how, how I wonder, I wonder how much the, the internet and um, information sharing is influencing that stuff. I wonder if people do feel like, 
more inclined to have kids or have families or get married and stuff like that because of what they see on on uh on youtube or whatever yeah see what i don't know is that if if what you're saying is real and if you know more stable families are being portrayed on you know in in media it might be because the people making that media are the professional managerial class who actually have more stable families now Mm -hmm. and so are perceiving the new reality as they see it or it might be you know sort of wishful thinking trying to use trying to leverage sort of cultural power to encourage, you know, working class people to have more stable families. And, you know, I, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. What's yeah. I, I don't know either. I know like being an artist most of my life, like, and other artists, like having a family and having kids was like a very difficult thing to do. If you are a, um, if you are a, an independent contractor, if you're, um, if you are a creative entrepreneur, as they call them now, but uh, I think that might be changing. Maybe it's maybe it's easier to to have a family. I don't know. Maybe maybe next week we can we can look at some actual data and not just right. make shit up like like I do all the time. Well, I look at data so often that I want to make shit up, but I'm happy to do more looking at data. Uh, hey, well, what's it like when you have a big audience and like do you ever do you ever get data wrong like i feel like you gotta i feel like you've got to be so careful not to put wrong data out there because a lot of people rely on you for information so is that like a is that a pressure on you sure yeah it's it's people do not know the amount of of work and thought and care that goes into presenting accurate information to the public it goes into being an influencer (laughs) yeah and and some people just don't do it and and a lot of times you'll see like really bad data bad factoids just go absolutely viral. So, so there was this case, um, I we could talk about this next time, uh, if you want, but I, I could tell you about cases where data went wrong. And I was just like, I was calling up people from the wall street journal saying like, you have to take this down. This is wrong. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I, I know that, you know, I don't have a huge audience online. I host a, a podcast and it's, the audience for that is relatively small, but I still, I still am confronted with the the fact that some people rely on that podcast for information, and they assume that I'm giving them correct information. When it's it's it, the entire podcast is opinion. I have no facts in front of me at all, and that's kind of a scary thought. It's not scary that people are following me without questioning. It's scary that people are following anybody without questioning. So that is something we should talk about next, we next week. Next time. Let's wrap this one up. All right. Let me pull out the guitar. The bookend this show with a little noodling. Hell yeah. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining Monkeys and Robot Suits. And Robots and Monkey Suits. With Noah Smith. And Jeff Byron. And we will see you next week. A little out of tune there. All right, let's end this.